Okay. And uh, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And it also, in addition to being Valentine's Day, the 14th and the 15th are when we um, celebrate uh, Shakyamuni Buddha's, celebrate, maybe not memorialize, Shakyamuni Buddha's Parinirvana. So this generally there's a ceremony on the night of the 14th of February and something on the morning of the 15th. And there's, uh, in some temples, temples in Japan, there's a, a session for, at this time of year. So, um, in thinking about what to share with you tonight, I don't actually feel inclined to bring in a particular Buddhist text or a particular Dogen text but more to talk about how practices in my life right now, I don't say my practice, I say how practice is in my life. And, um, or how practice is in life for me. And um, a little bit about practice in the 21st century. And maybe a little bit about the teacher-student relationship. So uh, I returned from Japan in the summer of um, uh, 2018, in August, and from the year 2000 until 2018, I was living in Buddhist communities. And since that time, I've been um, living here with my mother, who is now 99, taking care of her. And um, even though I've been back almost five years from from Japan, and um, I spent that from 2000 to 2018, 18 years in in not exactly monastic situations, but um, communities that had temples, and some of it was in monastic situations. So even though it's been almost five years, I still feel a little bit like Rip Van Winkle. I feel like I have come out into a different world than the world that I left in 2000. Um, And I'm enjoying that. The problems that we face today are really significant. And we have this fantastic practice of zazen that I'm really grateful for. Uh, Like many of you, I'm guessing, I start every day with zazen. And after Zazen, I recite the, uh, the robe chant and put on my own kesa. And then I do some prostrations and recite the verse of repentance three times. 
of confession and we call it the verse of confession and repentance. But I think we should really give it a better name, maybe something like um, uh, the verse of avowing our karma, because that's what it is, or or the verse of and our complete entanglement in the goings on of the world. And then I go on to the three pure precepts or taking refuge, then the three pure precepts, then the 10 grave precepts. And then I remind myself of the Bodhisattva's four methods of guidance, giving kind speech, beneficial action and identity action. And then I remind myself of the noble eightfold path, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, no, right, right concentration, right concentration, yeah. Then I remind myself of the um, eight truths of great beings. Those you may be less familiar with, it's from a fast call by Dogen. And maybe it's particularly appropriate to at least mention it tonight because it was the last teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha before he passed on. And it was also Ehe Dogen's last fascicle that he wrote. So I'm not going to give the whole fascicle, but I'll just say the eight truths or the eight realizations as I say them to myself in the morning. And that is... For a small desire, then knowing satisfaction, to know satisfaction, to enjoy tranquility, to practice diligence, to not lose mindfulness, to practice meditative absorption, dhyana, to practice wisdom. And the last one, it's kind of a little bit surprising not to engage in idle conversation. So I don't preach to myself about any of this. I just bring it to mind. And I'm very grateful for these teachings just bringing them to mind is enough to have a profound effect on our lives. To bring our most sincere mind to Zazen every morning. And what do I mean by that? I just mean we sit on the cushion. For myself, I find posture really important because the way I sit affects the way I think or don't think. And then beyond that right now, I investigate the world in the way 
that this one works, which means I read a lot of books and I study what scientists have to say. And I listen to the news. And I sometimes watch movies. So what I notice about our world and about my own feelings about it, you know, after 18 years, you'd think I'd learned something about realization. I think I learned maybe a little bit about myself. And part of what I learned is that For a long time, I didn't understand myself, really, or anybody else, but I thought I did. And I'm not saying I do now. I found out that um, I often find life terrifying. And that I try to hide that from myself. But now I don't try to hide from it so much. When I lie in bed late at night, when I can't sleep, sometimes I just go over what I'm experiencing. The experience of fear the experience of terror, the thoughts that I'm having. Just as, what is this? Oh, this is what you've been running away from so long. Oh. You know, my mother is 99, and... um, her hands are like like this. These fingers, these two fingers at the end don't work at all. They're curled into her palm. And she has a little bit of ability to grip with the others. She's blind. And uh, her um, mental capabilities are slipping away. So um, at night, she frequently calls to me, and uh, it's in particular with regard to that, that's one of the things where I'm particularly grateful for the recitation of the precepts and the Bodhisattva's four methods of guidance in particular, to remember kind speech beneficial official action just just to have recited those helps me when i'm being awakened from a really deep sleep and i really don't want to get up 
but I realized she cannot get up and get something from the refrigerator, have a little protein to eat or something or drink some milk. I can bring her a glass of warm milk, but she can't do it for herself. She can't turn on the radio to listen to something or read a book. And she doesn't know how to deal with what's going on in her mind. I can suggest remembering the names of her 19 great-grandchildren or saying her prayers. She's Catholic. But um, it's pretty hard for her. And the reason why I'm saying this is because when I look at her and I see this, I know that some version of that likely awaits me if I live that long. For each of us, there's some future that we have that's very different from what we're experiencing now. I can't tell her some of the ways I think at night. When I'm not exactly terrified, I just can't sleep. Or even how I think when I'm kind of off kilter and I want to remind myself that we're made of stardust, that we are very bodies, as you may or may not know, the elements that we're made of, the carbon, the trace minerals, come from collisions of stars and nuclear fusion reactions. So scientists are trying to build a fusion reactor that will give out more power than they put into it. It's actually through nuclear fusion in the stars that cause these elements to come into being and get splattered across the universe. And over billions of years, our sun was formed and this earth, this planet that we live in, was thrown off somehow and cooled in the way it did. This universe that we're living in is racing away from us. We're living well I'm talking to you now as I talk to myself. We're living, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're residing on the, I think it's called the Orion Spur, 
of the Sagittarius arm of the Milky Way. And we're some 27,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. It's kind of staggering when you think about it. And astronomers are learning more and more about space, that there are trillions of galaxies out there like ours. Well, we don't know how like ours, but, you know, spread throughout space. Our bodies contain somewhere between 10 and 100 trillion cells and maybe 40 trillion bacteria in each one of us. We have mitochondria, mitochondria in our cells, not in our blood cells, but most of our other cells have mitochondria in them. And these mitochondria have their own genes. You know, if you just kind of save yourself, that's saving a lot of beings. That's a lot. You know, each one of those cells doing its own thing. You know, it's not its own thing. It's, it's doing its role to take care of us. And our immune system is absolutely amazing. You know, our first um, our first grave precept is, you know, not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not kill. Well, tell that to my immune system. It's running around killing things. You know, we have these killer T cells. Their job's to run around and kill things. That's their job. That's how we stay alive. Shakyamuni Buddha, you know, he was kind of a scientist in a way. His thought experiment was, uh, the five aggregates or the six sense bases, you know, he said, what do you have? You have form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. You just have those five categories. Start putting, start putting what you experience, anything you can think of, anything you can see, anything you can feel or touch, put it in those categories. Do you find anything that doesn't go in those categories? No. Where's the self? Where's the self? Modern scientists do the same thing. They come to the same conclusion. Where's the self? Of course, They use a lot more resources to figure this out than Shakyamuni Buddha did. 
Not everyone thinks of Buddhism as a religion, but I do think of it as a religion. I think of it as a religion in the sense that uh, homeless Kodo Tsuwaki Roshi thought of it as a religion. He once wrote on a blackboard in a monastery, religion is everyday life. Living your life is religion. So I wear priest robes and I feel pretty good when I wear my priest robes. Not all the time because they're kind of a lot to work with. But when I put them on, I feel differently than I do when I'm wearing something else. But I find that kind of suspect to tell you the truth. In our tradition, there's not a big difference between a lay practitioner and a priest. A priest performs certain ceremonies. Suzuki Roshi said, the priest is not the most important one. We have priests because we need priests. That's all. Suzuki Roshi said, when you meet the teacher, you should leave the teacher. As soon as you meet the teacher, you should leave the teacher. I've been thinking about this because it's possible when we come to Buddhism to imagine, well, I'll speak for myself, to put all kinds of things on it that it really isn't about to imagine that I can somehow make my life right. That I can have a really good life that's free from the problems that's free from my personality, that's free from other people's personalities. Well, as any of you who have been practicing for very long probably know, it doesn't really work out that way. We can have a relationship with a teacher. We can feel invited into a different way of experiencing the world. But it's very easy in that to give away more than we should. It's very easy to not, uh, not really hold our seat completely, feeling the pull of the teacher so strongly.
I kind of wish I could have a, a conversation across the centuries with Shakyamuni Buddha and say, you know, those six realms. Well, the understanding now is that we're animals. We actually are animals. So we really can't be in a separate category. It's kind of like putting the other animals down to say we're better than they are. You know, what do you think? Venerable sir. Venerable sir, what do you think about all of those T cells in my body? What about those T cells in your body running around killing things? What about those cells that order other cells to kill themselves because they're not doing the right thing? What about that? You know? And then when you think about all the things that are going on now, you know, we have artificial intelligence and what do they call it? Uh, machine learning. And many computer scientists or some computer scientists anyway, are concerned that machines will become conscious. Will they become conscious and we have to give them rights? We have to give them citizenship or something like that. But nobody can tell us what consciousness really is, you know? And in Buddhism, there's different schools. Mind only, consciousness only. But what does it really mean? You know, I kind of want to go, what are you talking about? We're just talking. You know, we got to pass the time. So we came up with some theories. I went, visited a temple in Japan for a week with uh, Conan Cardenas. Some of you may know Conan. I think she has a different Buddhist name now. But um, we went to her teacher's temple, uh, Seki Harada Roshi. He, uh, his, his Dharma talks were translated in a book that you may be familiar with. I think it's called The Essence of Zen. And it was translated by Daigaku Rumi. And in there, he, his writing is so direct. He said, he says, Shakyamuni Buddha took a stick and hit the ground. You can't miss. He took a stick and hit the ground. You can't miss. So I went once to Japan with Conan and um, we were going to sit Sashin at this temple. But um, just before we got there, there was a typhoon and the mountains slid down into the Shiryu, the, the study and the men's bathrooms and the Zendo. So we were not going to get to sit Sashin. But I did get to have Dokusan with um, Seki Hirata Roshi. And I asked him, I said, Roshi, is it important that we study texts like um, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness? And he was so grandmotherly. He said, it's very important. Very important. And I said to him, 
does a Theravadan practitioner and the Zen practitioner, is their realization, is it different? Is there a difference? He said, not much. I said, but when you read the text, it sure seems different. And he said, somebody wrote a book. Somebody wrote a book. Shakyamuni Buddha took a stick and hit the ground. You can't miss. When you meet the teacher, leave the teacher. Freedom of mind. The freedom of mind I'm talking about right now is the freedom of mind that allowed Shakyamuni Buddha to walk out of the palace and say, sickness, illness, death, monk, I choose monk. It's the freedom of mind that I'm talking about. It's the freedom of mind when he went to various teachers and he learned all they had to say and he wasn't satisfied to keep saying, at least to himself, thank you very much. I'm going to keep searching. I'm not satisfied. It's the freedom of mind that when he was completely emaciated and destroying himself, he said, and Sujara had rice pudding. He said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to give up this aesthetic practice that is not giving me, getting me anywhere. That's freedom of mind. I hope I'm remembering his right, his name right. Victor Frankl, the author of, uh, Man's Search for Meaning in a concentration camp. The Nazis couldn't touch his mind and he knew that. That's freedom of mind. This is what we don't give to the teacher. No matter how deep our reverence for the teacher. Freedom of mind. I... One of the things I like to do is to watch these, uh, uh, you know, there's so many things that one can find on YouTube. And what I search out are people that I'm really interested in. And um, for, for instance, believe it or not, you can listen to interviews um, with Bertrand Russell. And you can listen to interviews with uh, Robert Oppenheimer, who led the Manhattan Project and later became the head of um, Princeton's um, institute where uh, 
Einstein spent his years once he came to the United States. Advanced Study Institute. So I listened to a, a talk by um, Robert Oppenheimer, and um, he said some very interesting things. First of all, about the uh, advanced study, uh, the advanced um, studies institute at Princeton. He said when researchers come there, um, they don't have to teach any classes or do anything, but just their research. And he said, and that's that's really hard when you don't have those distractions. He was almost describing a monastery situation. He also said, the problem of a coherent civilization is the problem of living with the frustration of ignorance. It's an interesting thing to say. Quite interesting thing to say. But to me, the most beautiful of all and most interesting of all was, uh, I think the interviewer was, um, this is Edward Armour, very famous. I think I'm remembering, I, his last name was Murrow, but I think his first name was Edward. But anyway, he asked him about scientists who work for the government about their work. And Oppenheimer said, well, you know, the work they do for the government, it's not pure science, but um, it's very important and difficult work, like cannibalistic missile re-enter the atmosphere without burning up. So he's talking about like a spaceship or something like that. But, you know, cannibalistic missile? The captions underneath, it said, cannibalistic. You know, it's pretty funny. A rocket devouring rocket, kind of rocket devouring rocket. But what he, but the point, the point that I still haven't gotten to what I really loved about what he said. He said, of these scientists, he said, some will understand one part. And some will understand another part. And there's some overlap between the two. And we have a kind of lacework of coherence. We have a lacework of coherence. We live with ignorance. We live with, I don't know, with a lacework of coherence. Isn't that a lovely turn of phrase? A lacework of coherence. So I just want to give you one example of a lacework of coherence, uh, or something that happened in the lacework of coherence, I should say. As I said, my mother has been, um, uh, her mind is not what it was, and she's sometimes lucid and sometimes not. She often says, help me, help me. Help me, or um, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Sometimes we have more lucid conversations. But one morning when I went in 
to get her up, she has what's called benign paraxial positional vertigo. Some of you may know what that is. It's the otoliths in her ears get stuck. And so when you go from lying down to, to sitting up, or if you go from sitting to lying down, um, you get very dizzy. So she has this, and so she's dizzy when she sits up. So one morning, she sat up, and she usually says, I'm so dizzy, I'm so dizzy. But this morning, she kind of giggled, and she said, I always tell her to sit on the edge of the bed and wait till the dizziness passes. And she she kind of giggled, and she said, I have to de-dizzify. I have to de-dizzify. I was thrilled. De-dizzify. Google it. It'll tell you there aren't any matches. Comes up with defuzzify. There's a word called defuzzify. You know, fuzzy logic. They get a fuzzy answer. Computer kind of computer logic, and then they defuzzify it. But there's no de-dizzify. But now there is. A 99-year-old woman who cannot see, whose hands don't work who's often not coherent, invented a new word. And it's a lovely word. So if you have ever had the experience of extreme dizziness when going from lying down to sitting up, I suggest you sit on the edge of your bed and de-dizzify. I think that's enough for me. Maybe take some questions from you. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, in the midst of uh, taking care of your mother so much, um, I was wondering how you take care of yourself. And I, I heard the part about uh, putting on your robe and sitting zazen and chanting and um, remembering the teachings. Is there anything else? Do I, do, I didn't hear the very last part that you said. Was there anything else? Is Was there that... any, is there, are there other, other uh, modalities of self-care that you engage mm. in? Take care of yourself in that situation of being a caregiver. Hmm. It's a great question. Um, it's a really interesting one. I, some of the ways I take care of myself is I, I live, um, where we live, it's about two blocks from the, from the Y. So I go to the Y and I get on an exercise bicycle and 
exercise. That's one way I take care of myself. And um, I try to uh, eat very healthy foods. Um, that's another way. Have tea with friends. I have two two weekly meetings. One that you you attend, Jim, um, with Reb, and then I have another weekly meeting with a group at Canando Zen Center. Both of those meetings are over Zoom, and um, uh, you know I'm kind of a a solitary soul. I actually think I'm, um, what can I, this is, this is a little bit hard to explain. Um, but taking care of my mother is also taking care of me. It's kind of interesting. Some of you may be very familiar with the movie or at least somewhat familiar with the movie Moonstruck. Do people remember that movie? It's with um who was uh Cher. Cher and I forget the the guy who played opposite her. Maybe somebody remembers the name. But anyway, she's gonna uh it's a it's a really great movie. Um her boyfriend, her longtime boyfriend, finally proposes and they're gonna get married, but he runs off to take care of his mother in Italy. And it's kind of this comical thing. This guy is so attached to his mother and never gets out. So sometimes I felt kind of like that, but I've really thought about it. And, um, ah, yes, Nicholas Cage. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. If she's up, plays opposite Nicholas Cage, but I don't remember what the name of the, you know, Nicholas Cage's brother in this was the one who went back to Italy. But anyway, um, You know, my father left my mother well enough taken care of, uh, provided for that we could have caregivers in here 24-7. And I was talking to my sister about getting another care- caregivers in overnight because um, because sometimes it's hard to get enough sleep. And so we can do that. But what I realized is, I don't want to. I want to take care of her. And I'm not talking about something saintly, and I don't think I'm talking about anything neurotic either. It's a, it's a relationship. It's an intimate relationship. This is really intimate, but I'm going to tell you, I've always been a mama's girl. When I was when I was a kid, you know, I was not into school. You know, we had this little navy blue uniforms with a white, you know, Catholic school. I just wanted to go home and be near my mother. I just wanted to be near my mother. Once when I was at Tassahara, I wanted to come and see her at Christmas time, but my sister and my brother-in-law were here using the spare bedroom 
And my father had died a year before. And my mother said, well, you can sleep in the bed with me. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. You know, that's like a little bit too much. But I thought, okay, I really wanted to see her. And I really wanted to come. So I did it. And I was astonished. That's a big king size bed. So, you know, there was a lot of room there. But I was astonished how well I slept. Because there was something that came before any neuroses or any, um, maybe from the womb. I don't know. There's something like, you know, like the air we breathe or something like that. Like, uh, um, there was a reporter who died of ovarian cancer a year or two ago, Cokie Roberts. Cokie Roberts, yeah. And she was Catholic, and she used to say, um, I'm Catholic like I breathe. Like I breathe. It's That's what she was saying about her religion. That was the way she felt about it. She's Catholic like she breathes. My relationship with my mother, it's like I breathe. Like, like I, can't, I can't quite explain it to you. And, you know, it's like I know she's going to die, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I, I just can't really explain it. It's like this is the situation I'm in. So I feel like when I take care of her, I take care of myself. If I, if I have to extract myself out in some special way to take care of myself, uh, it might be a, what can I say? It might be good in the psychology books, but I don't think it would be really the life I want to lead. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like, I go to the gym and, you know, do Zen, Zen practice, see friends for tea for time to, from time to time. Anyone who wants to talk by phone, you know, send me an email, kathy.early at gmail.com. I like to talk on that. I like having friends. So it's not that I don't like having friends. Friends are important. So I'll, I'll give that as my answer to your question, Jim. Was there any part I didn't answer? It sounds like the wisdom of no escape. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Hi, Kathy. It's Oscar. Hi, Oscar. Um, hi. Here I am. Um, so uh, when Reb men- when uh, Jim mentioned your robes, um, it reminded me that uh, something you said piqued my curiosity. And that was when you said um, you like putting on your robes, although they can be troublesome. <laughs> But also they're suspect, I believe, is the word you used. Mm. And um, I, I, I didn't understand what you meant about that. I wonder if you could say something. Sure. Um, what I meant was when, when we put on... Uh, the robe, we might 
start thinking something about ourselves that's not quite right. I think Suzuki Roshi at one point, somebody asked him why he wasn't ordaining any more priests, and he said he didn't want to. Um, he didn't want any more big shots, something like that. So we can think something about ourselves that's not true, but also others can think something about us that's not true. I mean, they can anyway. I mean, we think things that aren't true about each other all the time. You know, that's that's the way we are. Um, but that's what I meant, Oscar. I meant, um, you know, it's wonderful to have the tradition, to not have it, but to live the tradition. Like when I was at Toshoji, I was there a total of about a year and a half, and um, it was hard. And I loved it. It was a whole different world. I really loved it. And when I reflect back on it, I realized that that experience of being there and loving it required of me that I not be fully a 21st century woman, woman, as I want, as I am a woman and the way I want to be a woman. It was had to be a, something a little bit, and that in my mind, I did this funny thing. You know, the, the trans community now has a tremendous spectrum of what one can be, you know, who can be encompassed in the trans community. And my pronouns are she, her. At the same time, you know, from the time I was a kid, I never wanted to be a girl, you know. Girls don't get to, they don't have the power. You know, the men have the power. I didn't want a cowgirl outfit. I wanted a cowboy outfit because cowboys have the power. They're the ones who ride the horses, Randall. You know, they're the, they're the stars. If you see a cowgirl, she's off somewhere, you know, way in the background. You know, I wasn't interested in that. So I probably said too much, Oscar. But it's, we can, we can create whole worlds that can be, we do, we create worlds all the time. And there can be value in that. There's value in the, the rituals that we perform. There's great value in it, you know? But I think I've probably said on past occasions here, you know, ritual is animal characteristic. Animals have rituals. You know, the wolf, you know, show your neck. That's a ritualistic gesture. Wolves have tremendously complex societies. So we have, we have rituals and we need them. I can see I'm about to go off on a tangent on clothing. So so I'll stop there. (laughs) Thank you for your question, Oscar. I'll ask a follow-up if I, if it's okay. Sure. Uh, is that related to um, to not giving too much to a teacher, to imbuing a teacher a black robe with uh, projecting something that maybe is not there or giving away 
and 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 in that way giving away personal responsibility and power well i want to be really careful here you know because some of you may know math in terms of the the term overdetermined but i bet some of you have nothing to hate math and don't know anything about it but anyway the term overdetermined means when you have a situation you have a, a a number of equations and the number of unknowns is um less than the number of equations so in that situation you can have more than one solution to the equation so if it's overdetermined because you can have so every situation has more than one way of looking at it so from one side it's absolutely true that you know they put on robes and um we can think something about ourselves is not true or we can be attracted to somebody who wears robes and think something about them that's not true and as i said we do we do it's not like we could we do we do it's the nature of the human mind but that's not the whole story there's also something there and there's something that works within that situation there's there's a power there you know the abbot the abbot at toshoji um there were slippers always placed at particular places for him you know he always sat at the head of the table there were things you know that defined you know in the in one of the sections of the bodhisattva's four methods the guides talks about the the great or the emperor or sometimes the wise master or the wise lord and says something about the wise lord does some some translation says the wise lord does not hate the people but the people don't realize they don't hate the wise lord other translations say i think the the wise ruler accepts the people the people only want to be accepted by the wise lord but they don't realize that they accept the wise lord they don't realize that they make the wise lord so we make that situation together and we make it for a reason you know our species dominated the world because we have language and we can cooperate but also because we created these rituals different rituals kind of rituals for humans so there's something there and there's some, there's something in I'm very grateful to my teachers I I'm very grateful to Reb I'm really 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 grateful to him. and I gave away too much and I took it back yeah great for you thank you very much <laughs> you're welcome to my teacher too By the way, I should say um Reb wasn't really interested in taking it. 
least most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's perfect. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. I, I think I think we're turning into a pumpkin now, Kathy. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for visiting on Zoom and for your um, inspired thoughts.